The following was recorded at the 2014 Reformed Forum Theology Conference, held October 10th through 12th, 2014, at Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. For more information, please visit reformedforum.org. Good morning and welcome once again to the Reformed Forum Theology Conference here at Hope Presbyterian Church. Uh, We are so delighted to have you with us. My name is Camden Busey. Once again, I serve as president of Reformed Forum, as well as a pastor of this congregation, and we are just so excited to have you with us. Uh, We have been uh, receiving such great uh, Reformed theological teaching just over the course of uh, yesterday, and then we look forward to just another wonderful day today where we're talking about the theme, The Sons of God. Uh, yesterday, we had our, our discussion with Dr. Tipton, uh, speaking about uh, redemptive history, uh, divine authorship, and the Christotelism debates. And then last night, we heard about the aseity of the Son from Dr. Scott Oliphant. It was a wonderful uh, day full of rich theological content, and we're going to develop that this morning. I do have several things to mention conference-wise uh, as we begin, and I want to get you up to speed and let you know all of the wonderful things that we're up to at Reformed Forum. As many of you note on your name badges, if the back of your name badge has a special access code, uh, which will get you into a wonderful new system that we've developed uh, titled Reformed Academy. It has a catchy new top-level domain. You can go to the website at reformed.academy. That's the website. So none.com, no.org, it's just .academy. We were fortunate to get in there soon and just get the Reformed name. You'll see that you have a new droid name, like R2-D2 or C-3PO. So when your name is flipped over, then you become TBQ-65R or whatever it may be. This will, is a one-time use code that will get you into our new educational technology platform. It's a wonderful website, and it's in the very early stages, but we wanted to make this a special opportunity for you. And we thought, who better to contribute to a private beta and give us feedback about the future of Reformed Theological Education Online than you, the people who are coming to this Reformed Forum conference. And so if you go to the website, either at home on your computer or even on your mobile device right now, uh, and visit reform.academy, you can enter in your code and get access and sign up and start using the site right now. Now, many of you know, as your regular listeners, that our episodes, which come out every Friday and often sometimes on Tuesdays when we have... uh, or other programs released, are interesting discussions, but week to week they don't have any natural connection to one another. We might have an episode on uh, church history, another one on systematic theology, one on apologetics, but there's no natural connection. And so when we get questions in the email or when we meet people like you, and people ask us, you know, I would like an introduction to Calvinism, or help me understand Van Til's revelational epistemology, we don't have a single place to go to, to, to show them all that we have. And with almost 350 episodes just of Christ the Center and about 1,000 episodes of things throughout the website in our archives, all openly available, it's still hard to find it and it's still hard to know out of that 1,000 where to begin and what order to listen to them or watch them in. That's what we want to solve with Reformed Academy. We want to uh, collect and, uh, and package our resources into course modules. Now, it's not a traditional course. It's not going to be a replacement for the seminary at all. It's not even intended to be that. But it's an opportunity for you, the autodidact, the self-learner, to come in and listen and participate and grow in between Lord's Days. 
for you to take time when you're running or exercising, when you're commuting, to actually learn more Reformed theology in a structured way that helps walk you through the important lessons of the Bible and the important lessons of our Reformed tradition. So not only do we want to package and collect uh, and distribute our archival material, but we also plan to record and distribute Sunday school lessons from around the country and even around the world from solid Reformed teachers that you've come to know and respect through our programs. And we also look to raise uh, funds, hopefully, to develop new courses designed specifically for this medium. Again, it's not exactly the same as a one-to-one conversation, but if you look at websites like ConAcademy.org, I know many of you are probably familiar with that, and there's many other websites, edX.org, and, and wonderful new educational technology initiatives out there. It's a great frontier, and we want to be on the cutting edge of that in the front of it, but we need your help, not only to listen and participate and even contribute, but also to get in this private beta, to become the first people to use it, to tell us how you're using it, and provide your feedback. We need your help in order to make this better in order to improve it, to add features, all these sorts of things. So I do uh, want to encourage you to, to speak with my brother. Kelly Busey is back in the booth. You can see the top of his head. And he, uh, he is the uh, developer now who's coded the platform and is working on it. It is an open source platform. So this will be freely, the technology, not necessarily the content, but the technology is freely open and available on GitHub, for those of you who know what that is. Uh, but we want to make something that's going to be usable uh, throughout the world. And our content, of course, is distributed under a Creative Commons license, which is uh, downloadable freely, and uh, it's open and available to all. So please visit the website, reform.academy. If you've got a mobile phone, I encourage you even to do it right now and enter your code in. These are one-time-use codes, and you are the select few. Not quite 300. We're not entering the Battle of Thermopylae with Leonidas, but we do have Machen's Warrior Children, and now you have your droid names and your marching orders your code, your badge numbers, literally, to go forth and participate in this great new series and, and uh, great new platform. We're really, really excited about it, um, and um, I'd love to talk more about it with you in the future. If you look at your programs, we have plenty uh, lined up today. I do need to mention some things about the breakout sessions. I will introduce them and announce them when it's time. But just to give you an idea of where they will be held, there will be a breakout session in this main auditorium room. Uh, the, the room we're calling Auditorium South Wing, that, it's not really a wing, but it's that room over there. Uh, the door is there. Uh, that's where that is. There will be a breakout session uh, down in the Fellowship Hall. That's why the, uh, the pulpit, the podium is down there, as well as the conference room down. The door to that is right next to the book table. Again, I'll remind everybody when it's time to announce it, but that's where the breakout sessions today will be held at 10.15 and then closing out our session at 4. Wonderful day of content. And that's where it's going to be held. Well, this morning we're delighted to welcome uh, back to the stage our, uh, one of our guest speakers here, Dr. Lane G. Tipton, who serves as the Charles W. Crahey Chair, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was my uh, doctoral advisor and a good friend. I met uh, Lane uh, by, through Jeff Waddington. And I met Jeff Waddington through the internet of all places. I think he was my first e-friend, whatever that means. Actual legitimate friend that I met uh, through the internet through a circuitous route. But Jeff and I became involved uh, offline in, in certain things, uh, working on a, a previous website that I guess was kind of a prototype of uh, what Reform Forum would come to be. 
And then uh, knowing that I would come to Westminster to uh, partake and, and become a seminary student, I was looking for housing. And Jeff kindly invited to uh, pick me up and drive me around. And not only that, but he told me this wonderful thing called the Das and Case Society. Das is the nickname for Machen, and Case, K-E-E-S, is the nickname for Van Til. There's a wonderful little society that would get together at uh, students' or professors' homes, and it was meant for Ph.D. and THM students, but other people were welcome to come if they could, you know, uh, wiggle their way into an invitation. And that evening, he said that the conversation was going to be held at a Dr. Tipton's house. Well, I didn't know Dr. Tipton from Adam. I didn't didn't know anything about him. Uh, But that's where I met uh, Lane on his uh, front porch. And I heard wonderful teaching then back in 2005. And it's only been getting better uh, ever since. So we're delighted to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Tipton's dissertation was titled, The Triune Personal God, Trinitarian Theology and the Thought of Cornelius Van Til. It's under contract with PNR Publishing. It should come out as soon as Dr. Tipton recognizes that it's perfect and he doesn't want to rethink anything. (laughs) But you know the way his mind works, he's never going to get to the bottom of it. So we're encouraging him to release the manuscript once and for all. You can suggest that to him as well. Although his dissertation is available at the library, and uh, if you've got access to the right databases, you can get a copy of it. It is the statement on Van Til's Trinitarian theology. Uh, Nowhere else will you find uh, such penetrating thought that gets to the very core of what Van Til was all about. Applying a Reformed doctrine of God and a Reformed doctrine of of, uh, all of theology to apologetics. If you don't understand Van Til on the Trinity, you don't understand what he meant by one person and three persons, then I believe you haven't understood the core of Cornelius Van Til's thought. I would encourage you to read this dissertation and buy the copy of the book when it's available. Lane is also the co-editor of Revelation and Reason, New Essays in Reformed Apologetics. He has two foundational articles or chapters in that book. The book is for sale downstairs, but I encourage you uh, to read Resurrection Proof and Presuppositionalism, his treatment of Acts 17, 30-31, which gets to the core concern of what it means to, to understand history and facts in light of God's truth. We need not only present the denotation of a fact that something happened, but also what it means and in what context. It's not good enough as an apologist to prove that Christ rose from the dead, as strange as that statement might sound. You must also include what it means, and that's what Paul teaches to the wise men and women of the age in Mars Hill. Lane's also co-edited Resurrection and Eschatology, Theology and Service of the Church, which are essays in honor of Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., he has a wonderful treatment on Colossians 1, 15-20 and Hebrews 1, 1-4, which are on the subject that he'll be speaking about today and tomorrow in a Sunday school. And of course, he's a contributor to Confident of Better Things, essays commemorating 75 years of the OPC with his article, The Gospel and Redemptive Historical Hermeneutics. I said it yesterday at 2 p.m. If you have not read this or do not have a copy of that book with his article included, Buy a copy. We have them downstairs. Um, It is a publication of the OPC, but this is the chapter which is getting to the core concern with the Christotelism debates. It's getting at the essence of what it means for the Old Testament and the New Testament to relate organically. I implore you, uh, as as a pastor, for your soul, read this chapter. It is good for you to understand God's Word, confident of better things. And this morning, Lane is bringing to us our first plenary address of the day, titled Covenant History and the Tale of Three Sons. And I'm in no doubt confident that you're going to enjoy it. Let's give a hand to our speaker this morning, Dr. Lane G. Tipton.
Thanks, brother. Extended comments on this text, but I want you to have this text before you, and you can be referencing it as we work through it. It is wonderful to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity and have enjoyed this so much so far. Um, looking forward to today and all, all the discussions we'll have. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Here now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me. It will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding in the light of your word, that you would teach us to know you and love you, and that you would give us hearts that desire to make the gospel of God's Son known in all of its fullness and glory. We pray that we would rest in Christ and that you would teach us now for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. The title of the lecture this morning is Covenant History, a Tale of Three Sons of God. And let me begin by mapping out the general contours of this lecture and note some of the key themes that we're going to encounter. Luke 4 provides a panoramic overview of covenant history focused on three sons of God. The protological son, Adam, the typological son, Israel, and the eschatological son, Jesus Christ. Christ, as a second Adam and true Israel, recapitulates and reverses the outcome of the temptations of both Adam and Israel. He does so as the mediator whose meritorious obedience in life and death inaugurates an eschatological exodus that culminates in resurrection, spirit endowment, and advancement to the heavenly paradise of God. The movement of this eschatological exodus reenacts the baseline pattern of the first exodus out of Egypt, a movement from wilderness to mountain, high place, to temple. But in Christ, this eschatological exodus has its terminus not in an earthly copy of paradise, the temple, 
but in the heavenly paradise itself. And a central focus of this presentation will be the categorically unique obedience that the eschatological Son of God offers as the only Redeemer of God's elect. And as we move through this material, pay particular attention to the clear correlations and distinctions that exist among these three sons of God, because this material will prove foundational to what I cover in the following lecture later today. Luke 4, 1 through 13, is set in the context of the baptism and genealogy of Jesus Christ. In the baptism, verses 21 through 22, Jesus is endowed with the Spirit. And the voice from heaven declares that this is my Son. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. At least two significant features emerge here. First, the Spirit descends upon the Son in avian form, indicating His messianic identity. From the vantage point of Isianic prophecy, the Messiah will be the one on whom the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit rests. Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Messianic Son. The Spirit rests on Jesus to empower Him as the God-man to redeem a people. And He receives the Spirit without measure which is clearly anticipatory of his spirit investiture when he rises from the dead and becomes life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.45, 2 Corinthians 3.17. It anticipates the way Jesus is and will be the possessor and conveyor of resurrection life in the spirit. Much more can be said about that, but it's not germane directly to our point. Second, there is a clear verbal affirmation of Jesus' messianic sonship. The Father's voice from heaven, and voices are very important in Luke, this is my son, you are my son, and with you I am well pleased. This declaration from heaven regarding the identity of the son is important because it frames the genealogy and the temptation narrative That immediately follows. Jesus, as the Son of God, Spirit-anointed and baptized, is pleasing to His Father. He is pleasing as He is anointed and baptized to discharge the office of a mediator. These events, the anointing of the Spirit for the Messianic task and the declaration of of the Father, provide the frame of reference for recognizing that Jesus is a categorically unique son. He is the Messiah. So the genealogy from 23 through the end of verse 38 is critical to note. Notice this genealogy in comparison to Matthew's. Matthew, remember, begins his genealogy with Abraham moving forward to David and climaxing in Christ. He does this in order to demonstrate that Jesus is Abraham's offspring and David's greater son. 
Luke, however, begins in 3.23 with a statement pertaining to Jesus' contemporary experience. He was, so it was thought, the son of Joseph. And now there is a movement back behind David, back behind Abraham, back behind Noah, all the way to Adam, who is what in 3.38? The son of of God. In other words, Luke places Jesus as son of God side by side with Adam as son of God in order to frame the identity of Jesus as a second and last Adam. If you think back to Genesis 3:15 when the Lord made the primordial gospel promise, the protoevangelion to Adam and Eve, they were told that the seed of the woman, singular, he, would bruise the serpent's head. And that through him, the people of God would be clothed and their nakedness and shame addressed in 3.20. And that he would pass under the flaming sword of divine judgment in order to lay hold of the tree of life and confer life upon his people. And as they were cast east of Eden, their eyes were fixed on the horizon of redemptive history, awaiting the advent of this second Adam figure. Luke, in terms of the genealogy, and in back of that baptism, is saying, in terms of the literary structure, if you have set your eyes on redemptive history awaiting the advent of this Messiah, he has come. And this context and this interpretation is put beyond dispute in this, that beginning in Luke 4, the Spirit who rests upon Jesus drives him into the wilderness, into the desert, where he will be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. This prepares us for a series of temptations that reenact the temptation of Adam in the Garden of Eden. But there are significant contrasts. Jesus begins his temptation not in the pre-fall situation of Eden. He begins it in the desert, in the wilderness. The desert is the antithesis to the Garden of Eden in several ways. Think of this. In Eden, there was a beautiful, lush environment that was not yet marred by the consequences of Adam's sin. Adam had every tree for food except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Running through the Garden of Eden were life-sustaining waters. But in the wilderness, in the desert, you see the implication of the fall perhaps more clearly than anywhere else. Remember in Genesis 3.17 and following, what does the Lord curse in addition to the serpent? He curses the ground. Jesus, as a second and last Adam, begins his temptation with his feet 
firmly on the soil that is fallen because of the sin of Adam. And he, as this figure, faces temptation squarely in the context of the fall. He does so as a redeemer and mediator. The contrasts with Adam are clear. Adam was given a helpmate, a sinless human companion to bolster him in the face of temptation. He had help. Jesus has no human confidant, no human assistance. He is a solitary figure because he alone is the Redeemer. This is a path he must walk alone. Second, Adam was given every tree in the garden paradise as food, but the tree of life. He had at his disposal every food to satisfy all conceivable appetites. But Jesus is not only alone, but he is without food for 40 days and 40 nights as he is tempted by the devil. What is the last voice in this narrative that has spoken? It is the voice of the Father speaking with regard to the Son and saying, You are my Son, and with you I am well pleased. That's the last voice that is heard when Jesus is baptized. The next voice that punctuates this narrative, that enters into this narrative, is the voice of the serpent. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And here is the logic of the temptation. It is a direct, militant, subversive challenge to the Father's Word. And the logic of the temptation is something like this. If you are the only beloved Son of God... Why have you eaten nothing for 40 days and 40 nights? Is this the way your father treats you? If you are the son of God, save yourself and eat and tell the stone to become bread. And the logic of the temptation is to misuse food for selfish pleasure. What was the logic of the temptation in the Garden of Eden? Misuse food for selfish pleasure. But at an even deeper level, Satan's design is to undermine the son's trust in his father. Jesus responds by quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, Man does not live by bread alone. Now what is so interesting about this quote is it is a reference to Israel where? In the wilderness. In the desert. In the desert, Israel, remember, complained about the manna that God had given. They asked God and Moses if they had been brought out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. And what did they begin to do? Listen, they began to call into question the goodness and the sovereign care of God Almighty. 
of the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt. They did not trust in the goodness or wisdom of God. They scoffed at the manna from heaven, and they sinned against the Lord in the wilderness. Jesus is now identifying himself not only as a last Adam, but as true Israel. And he says what? Man does not live by bread alone. The rest of the quotation included in Matthew 4.4, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus recapitulates not only the temptation of Adam, but Israel. What is fascinating for us and relevant to this conference is this. Remember what God said about Israel as he brought his people out of Egypt in Luke 4, in Exodus 4, 22 through 23. He said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go that they might worship me. God is going to bear his mighty arm and redeem Israel and bring Israel by blood out of Egypt that Israel might worship him. And he says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he might worship me. You see, Israel, as God's firstborn son, sinned against God in the wilderness, grumbled against God in the wilderness, and that first generation, save a very few, died before God. It is the grumbling of the typological son in the wilderness that sets the sharp antithesis between the faithlessness of Israel and the faithfulness of Christ. It is Israel's faithlessness that characterizes the typological son, and it is whole-souled obedience and fidelity that characterizes the eschatological son. Not only did Adam, as the son of God, fail when tempted in the garden, but Israel, as the son of God, failed when tempted in the desert. Jesus is recapitulating and reversing the temptations of Adam and Israel, and he is doing so as the spirit-baptized messianic son of God, the savior of the seed of the woman and the true Israel of God. By his obedience, in the face of temptation, Jesus begins the process of abolishing the curse. Luke is telling us that the second Adam, the new and true Israel, is turning aside the curse by rendering the obedience that neither Adam nor Israel could offer. And I want to accent this point, which I will develop in a later lecture. Christ, as the eschatological Son, the Messiah, is the Redeemer of God's elect. As such, He is obeying in a way that Israel was not called to obey. He is obeying as a representative and substitute 
for the offspring of the woman. He is obeying as the mediator of the covenant of grace. And this means that he is doing far more than what Israel was supposed to do. Hmm? Far more. He is not simply fulfilling Israel's vocation, to use popular language that you might hear in N.T. Wright or others. He is doing far more than fulfilling Israel's vocation. He is doing what Israel could not do and was not called to do. He is offering himself as a representative and substitute to redeem a people for himself and grant them eschatological life. Not only a Son of God, but the eternal, incarnate Son of God is doing what is right in the face of satanic temptation, and this is the first blow that begins to bruise and ultimately crush the serpent's head. If you're reading this in terms of the way the narrative functions, it's as though a ray of glory from the age to come falls over this text in the obedience and fidelity of the eschatological Son of God. Where Israel failed in the first exodus and sinned and died, Jesus prevails. And so what do you see? You see that this exodus does not have sin inhibiting it. It's really good news. Mountain temptation or the high place Uh, Matthew makes explicit mountain Luke. It's a mountain high place. Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain. And the mountain temptation places Christ in a geographically exalted position in order to show him the glory of the kingdoms of the world. A mountain is, is important here because it helps us see the pattern of Exodus. When Israel is brought out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea, there is a movement from wilderness to where? Mountain to where? Tabernacle, temple in the land. This is a finely structured narrative that is presenting a pattern of exodus to frame our understanding of the person and work of this eschatological son of God. And so Jesus continues to recapitulate the the movement of Exodus. The logic of this temptation is this. If you will worship me, all the kingdoms of this world will be given to you, for it's been given to me and I can give it to whomever I wish. The fundamental push and logic of this temptation is for the Son of God to commit idolatry. To worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. To worship and serve Satan rather than His Father in heaven. And the appeal is this, glory without the suffering and death and wrath and curse of the cross. 
That's what the logic of the temptation is. Glory without worship that leads to Golgotha. It's the same sort of strategy Satan used with both Adam and Israel. Likeness to God without obedient suffering for Adam. Removal from the wilderness to go back to Egypt for Israel. The suffering of the wilderness was too acute. It was too harsh. It was too demanding. It was too grueling. I want you to remember something that's important about Mount Sinai. When Moses went up the mountain and the Lord showed him his glory and gave him the two tables of the testimony, the Decalogue, and revealed to him the glorious heavenly pattern after which the tabernacle was to be constructed. When Moses was with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, as Moses is with the Lord, what is the typological Son of God doing at the base of the mountain? In Exodus 32, when the people see that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to them, Up! Make us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron says, take off the rings of gold in your ears. Bring them to me. And the people took the gold off and he received gold from them, fashioned it into a golden calf and said to the Son of God, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And when Moses came down from the mountain, what did he see? Think of it this way. He saw the Son of God, the typological Son of God, bowing before an idol in the wilderness, committing explicit idolatry. And it angered Moses as it should. Israel bowed in worship before idols, the same sin that Adam committed when he worshipped and served Satan and not the Lord. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised. And Israel did what? Reenacted the idolatry of Adam. Do you see it? Israel reenacted the idolatry of Adam at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses is in the presence of God. Jesus hears this and responds again, quoting from Deuteronomy 6. You shall worship the Lord your God, and you shall serve him only. The quotation appears, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 18, it appears in the context of, of the giving of Shema, of the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Serve Him only. Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. Hear and fear and obey. 
was the call to this son. And this son turned a deaf ear and worshipped and served the creature. Israel, the typological son of God, failed to offer this obedience. And what is Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I am the embodiment and fulfillment of Shema. I hear. I obey. I love my Father, and I hear Him and do only what He calls me to do. And I do it as the mediator and redeemer of the woman's offspring and the true Israel of God. For Jesus and for His people, the way of worship is the way of suffering. For Jesus, the way of worship is the way of the cross and His fidelity that knows no boundaries will express itself to the obedience that climaxes on the cross. Jesus resists the glory of this world and He sets His face toward heaven and the world to come. And He does so by worshiping and serving the Lord to the point of death. He recapitulates and reverses the sin of Adam's and Israel's idolatry. He recapitulates and reverses that sin by offering perfect and personal obedience. And so, if you think about the Exodus in its Old Covenant form, what punctuates wilderness? Please hear this. Disobedience and death. If you think about what punctuates the movement from wilderness to mountain, what qualifies that? Disobedience and the Lord brings judgment and wrath upon these people. It's sin and idolatry. But in this Exodus, there is flawless, perfect, personal obedience that knows no taint, that knows no sin. This is only perfect faithfulness as your substitute and your representative. Satan, in 9 through 12, tempts Jesus a third time. And this temptation takes place on the pinnacle of the temple, which is ironic because the temple is the location of faithful priestly mediation in Israel. The priests guard the temple from impurity, offer sacrifices to remove impurity, and Satan takes Jesus to commit a profane act at the very pinnacle or apex of the symbol of purity and devotion in Israel. And this irony, this, this, uh, the irony of this temptation is that Satan seeks to turn the tables on Jesus. In the first two temptations, you get a commandment with a condition. You get the same here, but the difference is that now Satan quotes Scripture. Satan quotes from Psalm 91, 11 through 12. Jesus has quoted from Deuteronomy 8, 
and Deuteronomy 6.16, bringing both texts to fulfillment in himself. And Satan says, oh, I think I understand. You fulfill Psalm 8, and you, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 8, and you fulfill Deuteronomy 6. You're the Messiah who fulfills all of the scriptures. See, Satan was, he was wise enough to see that. He says, I've got one for you then, Messiah, Son of God. If you are the scripture-fulfilling Son of God, cast yourself down from here, for it is written, and this is mocking of of the Messiah, but it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On, your, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your feet or your foot against a stone. He's saying something like this. See the stones down below, Jesus? If you're the Son of God, validate your identity. Leap from here and angels will descend out of heaven and bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. I want to ask you this question. Think about this. Satan knows the scriptures probably in every known language, and I strongly suspect he has them memorized. Strongly suspect. He could sift you and me like sand, just like that, in in any way he would like if we were not in Christ and protected by him. Why do you think he's worried about feet? Why, of all the Old Testament texts in the Bible, would the serpent, Satan, be concerned about the foot of the Messiah? I'm going to tell you why. It is the heel of the Messiah that will strike the serpent's head and bruise his head. And Satan has been bruised with two mortal blows from which he's not going to recover. The heel has been applied to his head in a thunderous way that is absolutely unprecedented in the history of the world. He has never lost. And he is being tread underfoot, trodden underfoot by the serpent, so by the, by the Savior. So of course the serpent is thinking about his head and the Savior's foot. Now I want you to note what Satan omits. Psalm 91, verses 11 through 13, when you read it, you'll note the omission. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample under foot. The Messiah's feet are protected by angels for a singular purpose, and that is treading underfoot the serpent. Psalm 91.13 is an allusion to Genesis 3.15 and the primal promise that the Messiah will trample the serpent, will deal a mortal wound to his head. 
Revelation 12.9 identifies Satan as that ancient serpent, and Satan stops just short of verse 13 in order to tempt the Messiah to misuse his feet and his glory for a purpose other than trampling the serpent underfoot. Jesus did not come to obey the serpent. He came to destroy the serpent. And his feet are protected for that purpose. And Jesus now, Deuteronomy 6, 6.16 says, It is written, and this is so brief, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now this is brief because there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Don't you know what you omitted? You're putting me to the test. I'm not here to obey you. I am here for the third time to crush your head. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Adam and Israel as sons of God put God to the test by blatant acts of rebellion and disobedience. But this second Adam and true Israel will not disobey his father. He will not put his father to the test. And so what does the third temptation do in terms of the movement of the Exodus? From wilderness to mountain high place to temple, obedience that is perfect and flawless has been rendered. And Satan recognizing this, leaves. This is all he can take. The the sense is that this is all he can take. He has witnessed, listen, the serpent, who is infinitely, uh, potentially infinitely wiser than any of us at this particular moment in time. He knows exactly what has been reenacted in his face, and he's powerless. He's powerless to stop it. He is being undone by the Spirit-baptized Messianic Son, and he knows it, and he leaves defeated. Until an opportune time. Luke 4.13. That opportune time appears in Luke 23.32 and following. And I want you to note this. The opportune time is the cross. It is the location for the supreme effort of Satan to tempt Jesus as Son of God, where Jesus is at his absolute weakest point, and if a temptation is to work, it must be here. Luke 23, 35-39. Now please listen to this. I want you to note the importance of the voices in this narrative. Note this well. The people stood by, watching, But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription written over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who was hanged beside him railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In this opportune time, note the voices of those who speak the language of the serpent. Do you see it? Note that the people join voices with the serpent. 
The people stood by watching and the ruler scoffed him. Tell me if this sounds familiar. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. What was Satan's temptation? If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Now you hear the replication of the syntax and logic of Satan. If he is the Christ of God, let him save himself. It echoes 1 and 3, the first and third temptations, with a conditional followed by an imperative. Secondly, the soldiers joined voice, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. This is exactly the syntax of Satan. If followed by a command. And the logic is as the second. Then in 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. These three temptations are the opportune time where as Jesus is dying, and feels what caused blood to come from his pores, descending upon him the wrath and curse of God. He is hearing now the voices of the serpent in his ears, save yourself, come down. But there is another voice in this narrative. Another thief who joins his voice, not to the voice of the serpent, but to the voice of the Father. Earlier in Luke, remember that the Father spoke from heaven and said what? You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Right? You please me as my beloved Son. This other thief, about whom we know very little, this is wonderful. He rebukes the other thief as he's, as he's preparing to leave this world. And he says, do you not fear God? It's astounding. Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we justly, we deserve this. Are you a fool? Is what he's saying. And then he, and then he says this. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Here is the echo of the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son. He is echoing his father's voice. The thief recognizes that this is the sinless son of God hanging beside him. They are getting what they deserve, but Jesus is blameless. And he then makes a public confession of faith Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He not only rebukes the voices that speak against Jesus, but he calls out in faith to the one he recognizes is dying to save sinners and will come in his kingdom. It is a compressed confession that he knows death will not permanently bind the Son of God. That he will come in his kingdom in power and glory. 
a lone voice, one, calls out to the spirit-baptized messianic son, and he says, remember me. And the response, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is the heavenly reality of which Eden and Canaan were dim reflections. It is the telos, the consummative telos of Christ's earthly ministry. Christ not only departs to be with the thief in paradise, but three days later his body will be raised up into paradise forever. What does this mean? It means this, that though he dies, the thief will be with Christ in paradise. How do you understand that language? Westminster Shorter Catechism 37 asks this question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer, this is one of my favorite Shorter Catechism answers. The souls of believer at their death are made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, still united to Christ, do rest in the grave till the resurrection. Jesus is telling this thief, and please hear this, only my obedience, climaxing in death and ultimately resurrection and spirit endowment, only my obedience opens the gates of paradise. The same sort of language, just so you know, is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and 9, where Paul says we are longing to be what? Listen away from the body and at home with the Lord. To use Jesus' language, to be with him in paradise as our souls pass into glory and our bodies still united to him rest in the grave. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23 speaks of the spirits of the righteous made perfect, worshiping the Lord on Mount Zion right now while their bodies rest in the graves, still united to Christ until the great resurrection. To bring our discussion into focus and to use some language from our Reformed tradition, we can say this, that Jesus' comprehensive obedience alone merits paradise for His people. It is only the obedience of Jesus. His active obedience that conforms perfectly to the positive precepts of the moral law as a covenant of works. His passive aspect of obedience that bears wrath and sin to the point of death on a cross. It is only this representative, comprehensive obedience that opens the gates of paradise for His people. I want you to note this well. This text in Luke 4 is central to your Christian life, but it is not to be understood as a manual for your overcoming of temptation. This is a revelation of how temptation has been overcome for you by another. 
your obedience, my obedience, and this is moving in the direction of the next lecture, the obedience of sinners cannot open the gates of paradise. For that sort of obedience, you must look to Christ and Christ alone. And you must remember this baseline distinction, the distinction between the obedience of the Redeemer on the one side and the obedience of the redeemed on the other side. And the wonderful news of this tale of covenant history, a tale of three sons, is that the same Christ who said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise as you look to me by faith, he has opened the very gates of paradise for you as you Look to Him. We're going to continue to examine now, in the next lecture later, around two or so, I don't remember when I'm lecturing, but we're going to examine this issue in greater detail, and I'm going to try to move on and distinguish, and then relate, specifically, the obedience of the typological son, Israel and the obedience of the eschatological Son, Christ, in a way where we properly distinguish them and then properly relate them in terms of their typological connections. That will be the next lecture, and I think we will pray, and then Camden's going to come up, I believe, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would continue to teach us by the light of your word and that you would help us to think carefully and faithfully about these issues as we look to our spirit-baptized messianic redeemer, our messianic son, our redeemer. Grant us that we might rise up and walk in the newness of life that he has given to us and seal your truth to our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's wonderful to learn those lessons from God's Word, isn't it? If I was a Baptist, I'd say, Amen? Amen. We can say that too. They don't own that. Um, <laughs> our Lord Jesus Christ is, is, uh, he is who He is. He's our Savior. And it's wonderful to see how He triumphs in victory as the eternal Son of God, who also has been declared to be the Son of God in power through, by the Holy Spirit through His resurrection. And uh, He has destroyed our enemies. And we partake of that victory even now, but we look forward to uh, enjoying it in a consummative fashion at the end of days. We are going to break now for 10 or 15 minutes, but I would encourage you to get a, a snack or to get uh, uh, some coffee, but head on to where the breakout sessions are so that we can start promptly. Uh, the breakout sessions, we have uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant leading a lesson here on the antithesis and the image of God that's in here in the auditorium. I'll be leading one uh, titled, Becoming a Son of Glory, Christ's Pattern for the Christian Life. That'll be in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, Jeff Waddington it will be teaching on Jonathan Edwards' sermon, The Excellency of Christ, A Sweet Conjunction of Opposites. That is in this room over here. And uh, Jim Cassidy will be down in the conference room. The entrance to that is next to the book table downstairs. On Karl Barth's Christology, Van Til's Critique uh, Revisited. So those will last for roughly an hour. These are intentionally designed to uh, spark the conversation by offering 10 to 20 minutes of, of material. 
so your speaker will give some material, but we want to reserve a majority of the session for interaction. It's sort of a seminar format, and that's why we've kind of limited the uh, attendee numbers to each session to try to promote actual conversation, so you should be able to contribute in a structured way, so we encourage you to, to uh, participate there, and then we'll have our second round of breakout sessions this afternoon at 4 p.m. So I will dismiss you now and uh, head on out and uh, hope you enjoy these breakout sessions. Thank you so much.